Man, I want to just pause for a moment right here. Just remain where you are, standing. Just close your eyes if it helps you focus better, but just let the Lord's love wash over you. The thing that I felt like he laid on my heart for this morning and for the first service, and I think for this service too, is just this phrase. I feel like it's from the Lord. He's saying, he loves being your dad. He loves being your father. He gets so much joy from being your father. I want that love, even right now, let it wash off that guilt, that shame, the past narratives, all the examples of those who should have shown you love and yet did not. Allow his love to come in abundant measure and wash over you. He loves you. And he loves being your father. God, we get all eternity to try to fathom this. If you showed us the full weight of your love, which isn't just something you give, it's actually who you are. It's the very quality of who you are, God. You cannot be separated from love, for it's who you are. You never take off days from love because it's who you are. Everything you do is out of love because it's well, who you are. And God, I pray that you just give us, allow our understanding, and not just in our heads, but may we know, truly know, your love in deeper measure. And may it transform us. And may we experience the joy and peace that only come from it. And we thank you and praise you for how you demonstrated it so marvelously by taking on human flesh and then allowing your body to become broken on a cross for us. So Lord, again, we receive it. May it heal the deepest places within us, the places we never thought could be healed because we find that your love is what we have craved all along. So we love you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for your marvelous, marvelous love. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Oh, stay in that, everybody. Stay in that because we're opening God's word. We're going to learn more about it. <laughs> um, today. Um, but before I just jump into today, I do want to recognize real quick that um, we have somebody with us, um, Miss Joan Blake, who she, she hasn't been with us in a while, um, going through a strong battle of cancer, but she's turning 80 today, everybody. 80. <laughs> 
We love you, Joan. We love you, Joan. We're so glad you're here. What a privilege it is to, and she gave me permission to tell everybody how old she is, all right? She gave me permission. I'm not getting in trouble with that. To you, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Joan. Happy birthday to you. There we go. Oh, man. So good. So good. And what's beautiful is today is also Baptism Sunday. So we get to, yeah, celebrate the new life, uh, the new birth uh, that, that uh, two individuals, Chris and Greg, uh, we get to celebrate with them today. And, and like we like to explain it, the act of baptism is like a wedding ring. And that the ring is a symbol, right, that I belong to my wife. And that ba- in the same way, baptism symbolizes and communicates to everyone that we belong to Jesus. But at the same time, my ring is not what makes me married, right? And, and likewise, baptism is not what causes us to be saved, right, or causes us to be united with Jesus. Because if I forget my ring, I'm still married. I'm not happy. Shelby's not happy, but I'm still married. Likewise, baptism is not what unites us with Christ, but it celebrates the relationship that's already begun between the person getting baptized and Jesus. Um, But before we we get in and celebrate with them today, the question that I want to focus on is, what kind of relationship does God want with you? How well do you understand the kind of relationship that God wants, the living God wants with you? Now, before I just up and answer that, I want to share a couple pictures from July 18th, 2009, the day I married my best friend. Yeah, I love it. I love it too. And man, it's amazing how age happens. Um, but if you, if you didn't know, the amazing woman up here leading worship um, through music earlier was Shelby, and I get the immense privilege of calling her my wife. And... Um, the picture, this picture shows just how excited I was about that day. <laughs> that, was, that was after the ceremony was over. Um, but going back to the first picture for a second, I, I want you to imagine something for a moment. Th- th- this scenario did not happen, but imagine for a moment that the ceremony has begun and Shelby comes down and we interlock hands and we stare into each other's eyes and we get to the place of the vows And then Shelby pulls out this long list like a CVS receipt. (laughs) And on that list is the task, a perpetual honey-do list. And she says, here are all the things you got to do if you want to remain married to me. If that happened, everybody in this room would go, wait, 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 this is not a marriage at all. What kind of relationship is this? This sounds more like a business deal than a marriage. Or imagine we get to the vows, and for me, I pull out a list of all my needs, And I say, if you meet all of these, I will remain with you forever, baby. She has every right to take that, tear it up, and say, you don't get what this is about right now. That's not the kind of relationship we are forming. And so as we look at this relationship that has begun in, and we're celebrating, that has begun um, and now being recognized through baptism, how do we understand the kind of relationship that God wants with us? 
How do we understand what he meant this relationship to be? Because I find that there are many, whether we are aware of them or not, many twisted or incomplete understandings of just that thing. And we're going to look at a few examples of it in just a moment. But then after seeing some incomplete examples, we're going to look at Jesus' own words in Matthew 26, which he spoke during the Last Supper the night before he died. And we're going to hear for ourselves, what kind of relationship does the God of all creation want with us? And it's far more revolutionary, beautiful, and life-changing than we ever dared dream. What is his heart for you? What kind of relationship with God was made possible through Jesus? Well, let's start with his own words at the Last Supper. Matthew 26, verse 26. And that while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. This was at the Passover meal. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Everybody say covenant. Covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord, I pray that this word will be carried not just to our minds. Yes, give us understanding, but also allow it to transform our hearts. That we might understand what kind of relationship you came in the flesh to make possible with us. And may we receive that fully, openly. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to explain in a second how the words... Jesus just gave to his disciples, they would have totally caught them off guard, would have shocked them, actually. And I'll give more background on that in a moment. But if after initially hearing Jesus' words, if it's not yet obvious to you what kind of relationship God wants with us, hang with me. But before we look at what kind of relationship God does want, we're going to first look at some twisted or incomplete understandings that many of us may carry without realizing it. Before we see what it is, I want us to see what it's not. And so we're going to look at three common yet incomplete pictures of the relationship God wants with us. Kind of like the messed up scenarios of the wedding. right? That There are a few twisted versions that we may assume without even realizing it to be true. But they, how we view that very much affects how we see God and how we relate with him. So there are many twisted or what I call incomplete views of the kind of relationship God wants with us. Now, anytime we begin to explore the idea of God for the first time or what it means to know God, the natural next step is to try to understand it based on our experiences or our assumptions. And, and to, to, to get those, we come at God with a large combination of our backgrounds, our traditions, our unique personalities, our families, our past pain or trauma, culture around us. All of these factors shape how we approach God. Now, I'm going to stack all that up against what Jesus himself said. But before we hear his words, let's look at what I call three incomplete understandings. 
And the reason why I call them incomplete is because they all have some element of truth to them, but at some point they all become quite twisted. And as we walk through these, I'm curious, just you keep it to yourself, but do you tend to relate with any of these more than the others? So the first of these, many of us tend to relate to God like he's a boss and we're his staff on earth. We're his employees. See, this view understands God is over us. He is creator. He owns all that is. It's his. And scripture affirms, yes, yes, yes. He is the sovereign king over all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we saw in situations a few weeks ago, like with Noah, or a couple weeks ago with Israel, that when humanity became corrupt, God had every right to bring judgment upon people. So, what kind of relationship does God want with us? Well, we assume, well, he's the boss, and he has some sort of job description while I'm alive that I'm supposed to fulfill on earth. But our relationship with God is strictly professional. There's no heart needed. That we do things for God, and he in turn protects and provides for us. And man, if I'm fulfilling my end of the the deal, performing well, I assume God and I are good. But if I'm slacking, if I'm falling back, if I'm failing, all of a sudden I assume God's angry. He's about to terminate me, banish me, fire me. And I find that if this is our primary understanding of our relationship with God, and I've heard from so many people that it is, We tend to live with this massive weight of guilt because we assume that we can never measure up to the boss's standard. But this relationship with God is easier for many to believe because perhaps you grew up in a very guilt-ridden tradition or family or maybe you're just more responsibility-oriented and it makes you feel in control to think that Your relationship with God depends on what you do. And that seems fine until we fail and we don't measure up, which at some point in our lives we all do, and the weight of divine disappointment feels crushing. And when a church community assumes this kind of relationship with God, they're going to inevitably begin to treat each other as co-workers who... Assume that we have the right to judge one another based on our job performance. So is this really the kind of relationship God wants with us? All right, well, if not boss staff, then then second, we may relate to God just as a friend. Just as a friend. Just friends God. You know, we we view, this, this view of God sees God as someone who's beside us. We talk with him. We're friendly with him. And the truth in this is the scripture says he is an ever-present help in time of need. James 2.23 calls Abraham a friend of God. But where it gets twisted is when we take on a just friend's God, which means that he's not necessarily Lord. You guys, anybody in here remember those old, like, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts from back in the day? Yeah. Like, in other words... Hey, he's around. If I need anything, I know who to call for help. But that's about the extent of my relationship with God. So unlike the previous boss view, if he's just a friend, I don't have to obey him as Lord. 
And I may like the just friend's view because I still get to be in control of my own life. I don't have to answer to him. But when a church community holds a just friend's view, then we continue to run our own lives and we may still be friendly with each other, but there's no central mission. There's no purpose that unites us because there's no Lord over us. So that's just friends. We saw boss staff, but last, maybe this third one you relate to better. And then we may relate to God as if we're his client. Now, what's the truth in this? God is our provider. He tells us, ask me. Ask for things from me in prayer. God is good. He cares about us. That's clear. He's faithful. We saw how he provided for Abraham and the Israelites in the wilderness and David. But if we assume that primarily God is the almighty provider and I'm his client, then we start to see ourselves in a sense over God. That we have the right to direct what God does. And I find that the reason why this becomes a common understanding of our relationship with God is because we live in a very consumeristic culture. This is how we treat many things in our lives, so why not God? And it's similar to the boss staff view in that it's like a contract with God. I, God does for me. In turn, I'll be a good person. That's kind of how I see myself paying him back. But if I'm a client... The difference is that I feel I get to call the shots. But when God doesn't come through for me in the way that I want, in the timing that I want, all of a sudden I feel unjustly treated. I'm angry. I feel like I'm entitled to better divine service. And when a church begins to assume that client relationship with God, what do we become? Fellow customers. Fellow customers, and I don't really need to be in community with you because really I'm here to get what I need from God and then go about my week. I can be friends if I want, but it's certainly not necessary if that's the way I understand this thing. So, looking at each of these views, the boss staff, just friends, the client relationship, do any of these tend to relate in your mind more than others? Do you notice yourself holding any of these? But do you also see how each of them have some element of truth, but they're also incomplete? And despite all our assumptions or experiences, what does Jesus himself say is the kind of relationship God wants with us? I'll tell you a secret. It's way better than we assume. It's way better than any of these views could possibly assume. What kind of relationship does God want with you? What's his desire? What is his heart for you? The God of creation has always wanted a covenant relationship of love with us. Now, if you remember a covenant, what is that? Remember, it's not a contract. It's not based on feelings. It's also not based on what serves our self-interest. But a covenant is a relationship initiated and established by God, not out of obligation, but out of God's own free choice. And we'll see exactly what kind of relationship, what kind of covenant that is in just a moment. But a moment ago, we just heard Jesus' words to his disciples. Again, would have been quite shocking for reasons I'll explain in a moment. But in this scene... Matthew 26, 
The tension in the story of Matthew is growing about as thick as it's going to get. It's as thick as butter, right? Because later on in this chapter, Jesus is arrested and all of that begins to escalate from there. But at this Passover meal, he is pausing with his disciples in order to make God's heart known. But in order to really get that, we need to understand a little background on what's happening. This is a Passover meal. Well, what is Passover? Well, Passover was the annual festival where Jews gathered together to remember the day about centuries before this moment when God delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. And if you can go back to Exodus and read all about this, where on the day the Israelites would be freed, God, through Moses, warned the people, gather your things, get dressed, ready to go, because you're about to get out of here. He says, I want you to bake bread so that you have energy for the journey, but don't put yeast or leaven in it because you don't have time for that thing to rise. And also, he says, slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house. Why? That seems odd. Well, because God was sending a final plague over Egypt, which would pass through and finally loosen Pharaoh's grip on them, that the angel of death would pass through the land and claim the firstborn of every Egyptian child. But if you have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house, it signaled to the angel to pass over you. So at Passover, it's the blood of the lamb covered them so they could be free people. Hold on to that. But they weren't just freed from Egypt because God had a purpose for them. They were freed from in order to be God's people. Passover for them wasn't just about what God did in the past, but it's about who they are in the present. And that God brought Israel out of Egypt to form a covenant relationship with them. And see, unlike us today, the Israelites would not have assumed that the just friends God. Nor would they have assumed the client relationship with God. Because they understood God was holy They were not. And God gave them his law so that when obeyed, they could live as his holy people brought out from Egypt to be his holy people. And this law included, one, the list of moral commandments they were to follow, but two, a whole animal sacrificial system which was required to cover over their sin before God. Well, why sacrifices? This is getting weird. That sounds really bloody. Well, because in the Old Testament, symbolism is everything. And blood represents life. And life is the necessary payment for our sin. Hebrews 9.22 affirms, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood without it. Without the shedding blood, there is no forgiveness. Life, blood, must be given for there to be forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there is no relationship. And so you can see how this understanding of relationship with God could could lead the Israelites to possibly have more, or at least closer to that boss staff view. We obey, God blesses. But there's a problem. 
Because despite how hard we try to obey, their story revealed over and over, we cannot make ourselves holy like God. That God commanded his people, be holy as I am holy. But they failed every commandment over and over. Why? Because their hearts were infected with something called sin. And even as the Jews, year after year, came to sacrifice to God, Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But while sin enslaved our hearts, Jesus was the lamb who came to set us free. And back, yeah, that, that deserves a clap. deserves <laughs> a clap. Because if we, get, if we go back to Matthew 26, back to what we just read earlier, Jesus took the bread, he took the cup, he blessed them, he gave them. All of that, that's what happens at Passover. That is the tradition that has continued for centuries. But what rattled his disciples and everyone who might have seen that was when he broke from that tradition and he held up the bread and he says, take and eat, this is my body. And then he held the cup and he says, drink, this is my blood. <laughs> Excuse me. Of course he's not being literal here. But just as baptism is a symbol of what God has already done in those being baptized, he's using the bread and the wine to symbolize what he came to do for us. That the one who took up the bread is God himself who took on human flesh. And it's with his life that Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law without any sin. Meaning Jesus needed no one to sacrifice for him for he was spotless. But just as Jesus broke the bread and gave the wine, he gave up his body and blood so we could be forgiven. And from the moment, the very beginning of this whole story of God, from the moment God created everything and we failed, to then go to, to Noah and Abraham, to Jacob, to the Israelites, to David, Everything was leading up to this very moment. Even the law itself, Hebrews 10.1 says the law is just a shadow of Christ to come. That God wasn't like, ah oh, man, the law thing didn't work, so I guess I got to send Jesus now. It wasn't, it wasn't like an oopsie. But the law is what God used to make us aware of our sin that separates us from God. And it's all the sacrifices that God made us aware what's necessary to atone for sin. But then he sins, his, he himself comes in the flesh to show us that only Christ, the true Lamb of God, can set us free. Only him. And that Christ freed us from sin so we could be in a new covenant relationship with our God. So Jesus said, his is the blood of the covenant. Oh, but this is a different kind of covenant relationship. <laughs> because in the new covenant relationship, it's not based on how well we fulfill the job description, but how Christ has already done that. 
It's not established by our sacrifice, but by his on a cross. It's not supported by our best intentions, but by God's radical grace. This covenant is not with a God who is distant, perpetually disappointed, or who wants a strictly professional relationship. But those who believe and receive in what Christ has done, you begin a covenant relationship with a God who loved you so much that he took on humanity and he became broken as the necessary sacrifice that we might know him and not only know about him that's not what I mean but that he we might actually know him because he says that his spirit comes to dwell with us that we are united with him that this is the kind of relationship that God has always wanted with you we're not his employees we're family we're united with him closer than a friend we're not fellow customers we're the redeemed this is the new covenant But I got one more important detail, one vital detail actually, about this new covenant with Christ. Because our covenant with God is based on what he did, we can be confident it's forever. And after Jesus explains how he's the one to give his body and his blood, Jesus says one last thing while still holding the cup. He says in verse 29, I tell you. I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, when they celebrated Passover in Jesus' day, it wasn't just about looking at the past. And it wasn't just about recognizing who they are in the present, but they were also looking forward to the future. Because for many of them, they were looking forward to the day when, as God freed them before, he would free them again from Rome or any other ungodly, oppressive human kingdom over them. But in this moment, Jesus is speaking to the future, but much further than any human kingdom. To the very point where all human history is headed. Because after dying, Jesus knows he will defeat death by rising again. And he will ascend to the throne of glory where he is now awaiting the day of his final return. And on that day with a capital D, a day we still anticipate, Revelation 19 says that all the multitudes of heaven will rejoice for what is called the wedding of the Lamb. And that all those who belong to Christ, who are in relationship with him by faith, that you will be dressed in white, cleansed by his blood, like a bride. That all tears, all death, will enslave humanity no longer. And we will bask in the perpetual joy of the God of endless love. What kind of relationship does God want with you? That's it. That's it. That the God of creation took on humanity with us, but gave his body and blood for us that we might be in forever covenant with him. So why do we make such a big deal about baptism? Because it celebrates not only what God has brought them from, not only who they are, but also their future. It's because of their faith in Christ that they're cleansed from past sin, forgiven and set free, and they begin a new life and covenant relationship with him that will continue into all eternity, an eternity of forever joy in the love of our heavenly Father. The God of creation took on humanity with us, but gave his body and blood 
for us, that we might be in forever covenant with him.